Well, there can be no doubt that, as I kind of referenced earlier, America's in, in a tough spot today. Um, by virtually every measure, we are declining. And I, I've talked about this extensively and written about it over the past few years, that all of this really indicates uh, that uh, the return of Christ is probably very soon. I mean, we can't set a date. We don't know for sure. But Jesus does tell us to look to the signs of the times. And we do know that things are going to get worse and worse, according to 2 Timothy 2.13. And so on the one hand, we, we shouldn't be surprised. But on the other hand, God is the ultimate arbiter of time. And only he knows his timetable for his plan for human history. And so until we meet the Lord in the air, or until we go the way of all flesh, we must consider what is our role here? What is the role of the church? What is the role of uh, God's people, men and women of faith? And I think before we can really understand that, we have to really step back and look at the big picture and ask, how does the church fit into God's plan of the ages? You know, sometimes we think about church history with all of its ups and downs and its schisms and schisms, and, you know, it's, it's come a long way in 2,000 years from a, a small group of believers who placed their faith in Jesus Christ who had died and risen from the dead to pay their penalty for sins, and the church just burst on the scene in 33 A.D. in the midst of the Roman Empire, and then it began to spread westward and eventually throughout the world. And today we have all kinds of so-called Christian religions and, again, denominations and all kinds of uh, various false uh, iterations of the church. And so it's hard for us to really remember that God loves the church and that the church is the bride of Christ and that God has a purpose for the church. And so before we get into why America needs the church today, uh, let's step back and look at the big picture. You know, if you look at the pl God's plan of human history, that human history is about 6,000 years old, and it started with a globalist uh, paradigm. God ruled the world, and everybody on earth, regardless of where they were, worshipped him and was accountable directly to him. But around 1,700 years after creation, everything changed, and God's paradigm shifted into a nationalistic uh, plan, and, and, and nations were born, and, and people then had a responsibility to their civil governments and so forth. Now, we know from Scripture that ultimately we're headed back to a globalist world, and this time, the King of kings and Lord of lords himself, the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, is going to rule the world. And he's going to do so in perfect peace and righteousness and judgment. But prior to that, as I've talked about frequently and written about a lot, uh, there's going to be a brief period of time when uh, the world is under a globalist regime led by Satan and the Antichrist. But remember, it's heading full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state when all is made right once again and all is new once again. But right now, as you see on the screen, the church functions and should function uh, not contrary to government, not under the thumb of government, but within a context of national government. Everywhere across this earth, believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, are living in some type of nationalistic setting. Now, some are more favorable than others. Some have more freedom than others. Some are less oppressive or more oppressive than others. But, but it's a nationalistic world. And because of that, we need to understand in our culture how we are to interact with America, with our government. Uh, America needs the church. How, how are we doing in God's plan of the ages? What is the state of the church in America today? Is 
the church being a positive or a negative influence in America today. We need to remember that God has given us marching orders in his word. He's told us what we're supposed to be doing, why we exist. And God is not through with the church. Now, on the negative side, there are a lot of problems with the church today. The church today, first of all, is largely apostate. That's a biblical term. It means it's fallen away from the authority of God's word. And in America, almost a century ago, it really began we really began to see a turn away from the authority of God's word as the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. In theological circles, we call that liberalism. They abandoned, for example, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the literal 24-hour, six 24-hour days of creation, the literal parting of the Red Sea, a literal global flood, a literal great fish swallowing Jonah. All of the stories and historical accounts in Scripture began to be swept aside. And churches still met, but they met not based on the authority of God's word, but they met more as a social club. So the church is largely apostate. But secondly, in our culture today, what many historians are referring to as the post-modern culture or the post-Christian culture, the church today is largely artificial. And that is, they may still give lip service to the Bible or to the Lord or sing about Jesus or sing about you know, good things, but in reality... They're not standing firm on doctrine. They're not standing firm on the truth that is to go marching on, as we just sung about. It's an artificial church. And then there's the apathetic church uh, today. The apathetic church may, again, stand firm on the Bible and value doctrine and understand that there is one truth, capital T, but they really don't care about God's plan of the ages. They don't talk about the end times. They don't talk about that 16% of the Bible that deals with end times prophecy, prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. They're apathetic. And then finally, I would critique the church by saying that many believers today are asleep. They're, apath they're, they're totally asleep. And as one of my uh, mentors said uh, recently, not too long ago, the last thing America needs is more sleepy Christians. And yet that's exactly what we find. People that don't understand the urgency of the hour. If you don't recognize that in just the last couple of years alone, there have been you know, life-altering changes, not just in our country, but in the world. It ha there has been a major paradigm shift. And now, more than ever before, America needs the church. So after 2,000 years, I wonder if the church has lost its luster a bit. Have we lost our way? We no longer resemble that special, unique body of Christ that was established on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. In a recent article that I wrote that was posted on Harbinger's Daily just last week, I wrote this. I asked the question, is the sun setting on the church? As the world is transfixed by, transfixed by chaos, has the church failed to recognize the urgency of the hour? Yet, in spite of all that, God is not through with the church. America needs the church. But America needs the church as described in Scripture, not the church as it has become today, passive and apathetic and apostate, etc. Now, why does America need the church? Well, to answer this question, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture from the book of 1 Peter. Now, you may not have your Bibles with you for this outdoor celebration. That's fine. I'm going to put the verses 
on the screen. But if you do have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there with me and follow along as we look at this passage of Scripture. Let me put it in historical context first. So Peter is writing his first epistle some 30 years after the church began. So three decades. You know, we're 20 centuries into the church today. He was three decades into the church. The year was 64 A.D., and he's writing during a time of intensifying persecution under the Roman emperor Nero. So just as we function as a church within the context of the United States of America, in the time that Peter was writing, the church functioned within the context of the Roman Empire. And in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, Peter explains that the church, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, are strangers and pilgrims in this world, just passing through. And he explains how we have a job to do. He tells us how we should live in times of persecution. And even though the persecution that we're facing today pales in comparison to, to what many believers in other parts of the country are facing, there is no doubt that there has been an uptick in persecution today. We are seeing many of our Christian freedoms stripped away little by little by little. And so it's very appropriate, I think, to kind of take a sneak peek at what Peter said was relevant for his church culture that was facing persecution and apply it today. So Peter explains how we should live in times of persecution and he does it from both a negative and positive aspect. Negatively what we should not do and positively what we should do. The Roman world needed the church in the mid to late 60s AD and America needs the church today. So let's look at this text in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. He begins, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to the governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So we'll unpack that in a little more detail as we go forward. But let me just summarize those four verses this way. In essence, here's what Peter is saying there. He says the realization that we don't belong in this world, that we're just sojourners and pilgrims passing through, should not lead us, should not lead us to withdraw from society or drop out of society, as enticing as that may be. You know, I get comments all the time when I'm speaking at conferences about people who say, well, you know, shouldn't we just drop out and move to a mountaintop and start our own society, kind of like Ian Rand suggested? Peter says, no, no, we're not to withdraw from society or drop out of society, as enticing as that may be. He says, rather, understanding our place in this world should lead us to step up our standard of behavior and take our cue not from the culture in which we live, but from God's word. Our citizenship is in heaven, and our lives must always reflect the place we are headed not our temporary lodging in this world. See, God is not through with the church. We have a job to do. And let me give you three reasons that America 
needs the church today more than ever before. First of all, America needs the church because the church is a divinely ordained institution. Simply put, God established the church in this present age, and we have a job to do. And even though many people in the church today are apostate, and as the Bible predicts, people are getting further and further away from the Lord, there's always a remnant, and we want to be part of that remnant. We want to fulfill our duty. You know, the Bible speaks of three divine institutions going all the way back to creation in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. The first is marriage or family. That's the first institution, and that's what matters most. And that's, by the way, why the gender surrender movement is such a serious demonic attack in our day. It cuts right to the heart of the image of God in man. And uh, Satan is trying to destroy this foundational institution. And we're seeing it being destroyed in our own country. You know, everybody talks about the recent Supreme Court decision, but we have short memories. We forget that within, just within the last two years, that same Supreme Court that's supposed to have a super conservative majority affirmed gay marriage and affirmed that all employers must hire and cannot discriminate upon someone's gender identity. A male claiming to be a woman is perfectly acceptable. Men can marry men. Women can marry women. That's an attack on the divine institution of marriage. The second institution is government, and we see this mentioned in Genesis chapters 9 and 10. As I just mentioned, national government is God's divine design for this present age. The Luciferian globalists are also attacking national sovereignty. They want to destroy national sovereignty. They want to destroy America, and they want to usher in the satanic form of globalism. And then the third divine institution, which we're talking about this morning, is the church. The church is divinely sanctioned. And it's intended to serve a purpose, as spelled out in Scripture, in our world today and in our country today. And yes, the church is under attack today. And that's why we see the problems that I mentioned a moment ago. But the church has a purpose in America today. Let me just mention a couple of them. Uh, first of all, according to Scripture, one of the purposes of the church is to call attention to Christ's name. We see this in Acts chapter 15, where we're told that God is calling out a people for his name. That's why we're called Christians. We talked last week in our series through the book of Acts here at Plum Creek Chapel about how the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, 10 years into the church. You realize for the first 10 years of church history, we never heard the word Christian. And then in Antioch, uh, in Syria, uh, as Paul and Barnabas were uh, you know, getting ready to head out on their first missionary journey, the Bible tells us that that's when uh, the disciples, that's what they were called during Jesus' earthly ministry, began to be called Christians. Well, what does that mean? Christian means Christ-like. It calls attention to Christ's name. You know, uh, Jews are not called Yahwehites, and you know, Muslims are not called Allahites, but we're called Christians. And if we're doing our job, which sadly most of the time we're not doing it very effectively, we ought to be calling attention to Christ's name. Secondly, we're to fulfill the Great Commission by showcasing the exceeding riches of God's grace and mercy. We read about this in Ephesians chapter 2. But we are to show people that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and anybody can receive the free gift of eternal life. Anybody can have their sins forgiven and be made right with a holy God if they'll simply receive the free gift of salvation paid for by the blood of Christ. That's our job. We're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And then one more purpose I want to mention, there are others, but one more that I thought is relevant 
as we talk about why America needs the church, is that the church is to be doing battle with Satan in the spiritual realm. We are to showcase God's wisdom to Satan and his demons, according to Ephesians 3.10. In Ephesians 6, we read about this spiritual battle, but we are on the front lines of this battle. Just as Satan, in his conspiracy to take over the world, which he's been trying to do ever since he got kicked out of heaven, conspires with demons and with earthly Luciferians, as David talks about in Psalm 2. Likewise, God and his holy angels and the church ought to be working together to, to do battle on our knees and elsewhere uh, in this spiritual battle. So America needs the church because the church is, is a divinely ordained institution and the church has a job to do. That's the way God planned it. God's divine design in this present age is for the church to function properly and effectively in the world at large. But secondly, America needs the church because the church makes America great. You want to make America great? It's not going to be through a political party or a president. I always like to remind people, God, the creator of the universe, is not an American. Nor is God a Republican, by the way. But if we want to make America great, it's going to be the church that makes America great. The church, when functioning biblically, having a positive effect on the nation. Believers in the church, men and women and young people, walking in the Spirit, living for Christ, living according to God's Word. That's going to vastly improve this nation. Let's go to our text. Look at what Peter says in verse 11. We are just pilgrims, sojourners and pilgrims, missionaries. Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. We're just envoys here. What's an envoy do? He represents somebody else. We're here representing the Lord in our country today. Paul puts it this way in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians, Paul said, since we were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. If we go back to our text, he goes on to say, having our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Remember, Peter's writing to Jewish believers. That's why he talks about Gentiles here. Christians, but Christians that had dispersed abroad in the early days of the church after getting saved. He says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, watch this, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The day of visitation is referring either to the rapture, I tend to lean that way, it's a little bit ambiguous, or could be talking about when God visits each individual unbeliever at the moment of faith when they trust in him. But either way, the point is, the church makes America great. Because if we're walking in the Spirit, representing Christ like our name says we should as Christians, it's going to get people's attention. Later on in chapter 3, Peter says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So I think, and I'm guilty of this myself, we get so discouraged and so depressed both by the you know, the decline of the church and the decline of our great country. We walk, mope around, walk around with frowns on our faces and we forget that who, who we represent and that our citizenship is in heaven. And last time I checked, everything's going perfectly in heaven. 
And so we, need, we have a job to do. We need to be ready to give a defense for the hope. But we've got to be hopeful before we can defend our hope, right? Peter goes on to say, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it's far better, if it's the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Jesus said it this way early on in his ministry when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. This was before the church was founded, but the principle is repeated in the New Testament epistles. He says, let your light so shine before men. Why? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, in every era, every age, God has a representative group that is to point to him, to shine the light on him. That was Israel for many years. They were to go into the promised land and live for Yahweh, testify to the unity of God, the Creator, and all the pagan nations were to see that and say, wow, we want the blessings that you have from God. Let's come to God. Of course, Israel failed repeatedly just as the church is failing, and we won't see that happen perfectly until the Prince of Peace himself comes back and takes the throne. But that's our job. Paul says it this way, speaking directly to the church, we are to become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, is the sun setting on the church? How brightly are we shining? Another way the church makes America great, by the way, is because the presence of the Holy Spirit working in and through the church acts as a restraining influence. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul is talking about that future Antichrist after the church meets the Lord in the air that's going to take over the world. And Paul mentions that when he comes at that point, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit in and through the church will be removed. So as bad as the world is now, just imagine how bad it would be if it were not for the presence of godly believers walking in the Spirit. I mean, think about it. For roughly 2,000 years, Satan has been trying to take over this planet and claim it as his own. And it's easy for us to see as we look back through the annals of history how much evil he has orchestrated. You go all the way back to ancient times and you look at kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Ahab, or in more modern times, Herod and Stalin and Hitler or Mao or Pol Pot and on and on and on. There's no shortage of evil. But what the pages of history often do not record are the number of times that the church, through the influence of God's spirit in believers, has preempted some dastardly deed or plan. Maybe it was a firm ethical word in the midst of a corporate meeting by a believer who was not afraid to take a stand. Maybe it was private counsel to a world dictator from a believer a church member of the church at large who God put there for just such a time as that. Maybe it was the selfless sacrifice of godly men and women who stood up to evil and prevailed in unsung ways. But without question, the Holy Spirit's work in and through the church represents or should represent, if we're doing our job, a restraining protective influence on the earth in general and for American Christians, in our country specifically. So America needs the church, first of all, because the church is a divinely ordained institution, secondly, because it's the church that will make America great, and thirdly, and finally, because our government has abandoned its duty. 
like the institution of the church, the institution of civil government also has a divinely designed purpose and obligation. Throughout history, when governments fail to perform their God-given purpose, God often brings judgment. Moreover, in such cases, the church must stand in the gap and maintain the standard of morality and righteousness and speak out against sin when the government will not. Solomon warned, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We go back to our text, we see that Peter addresses the God-ordained duty of government. He says in verse 13, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. That word ordinance is the Greek word katissus. Katissus. It's only used 19 times in the New Testament. And interestingly, it's almost always translated creation or creature. In fact, the only time in our English Bibles that Catissus is translated ordinance is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. But elsewhere, it, it always refers to creation, and I'm going to suggest and, and show you in a moment that's what it's referring to in 1 Peter 2, 13. But later on in the epistle, Peter uses the same exact word, Catissus, in chapter 3, when, remember, he talks about how at the end times there will be scoffers and mockers who are mocking those who are teaching and preaching about the second coming of Christ. And he says, you know, they, they would say that all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Same word, katissus. Or Paul in Romans 1.20 says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Katissus. If we go back to the text, what does it mean here? See, many believers unfortunately misunderstand and, and I think misapply because of that this verse, and they think it's saying that we must obey every law that the government puts forth. Well, first of all, Peter never uses the word obey. And second of all, he's not talking about laws. Ordinance here is not the best translation. It's the word creation. So the idea is that believers are to submit, we'll come back to that in a second, submit to God's divinely appointed human institutions, that is, institutions within creation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every created institution of man, so long as those institutions are functioning the way God divinely designed them to function. I mean, think about it just for a second. I know we can smell that barbecue, and I'm ready for it just like you are. So I'm almost done. Think about it. If every one of those three divine institutions, marriage and family, government and the church, functioned precisely the way it is designed to function according to God's word, it would be a perfect world, wouldn't it? And by the way, one day it will be. But the government is not functioning the way it should. What is the purpose of government? What is the purpose of this divine institution? He goes on to tell us it's for the punishment of evil and the praise or blessing of good. Paul echoes the same thing in Romans 13. The government here he talks about is God's minister for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister. Again, it's a divinely appointed institution, civil government, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So what does Peter mean when he says we should submit to this divine institution of government? And by the way, Paul says the same thing in Romans 13. Well, the word translated submit here is hupotasso. Hupotasso, it's 
used 40 times in the New Testament, and it's almost always translated submit or be in subjection to. To submit does not mean to blindly or unilaterally obey. I mean, that's clear from Scripture. Peter himself did not unilaterally obey the government. We see that again and again in the book of Acts. The word hupotasso is used in many, many different contexts where clearly it does not mean obey. For instance, uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians, we're to submit to one another in the fear of God. Now, does that mean that I must always obey you? I mean, what if you demanded that I root for the Denver Broncos? I mean, I'm not going to do that. I'm a Cowboys fan. Thank you. Uh, what about Ephesians 5.22, the next verse? Wives, submit to your own husbands. Does this mean a wife must obey her husband at all times, no matter what? What if he's abusing her? What if he's assaulting her? What if he's committing a crime and insisting that she go along with it? Obviously, in that case, the husband is not fulfilling God's divine design. So, of course, we're not to submit. We're supposed to submit to the divine institutions to the extent that they're doing what God divinely wants them to do. Going back to Peter, Peter says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, and all of you be submissive. Be submissive. They're the same word, hupotasso. It's used twice here in this verse. Submit is hupotasso. Be submissive, hupotasso. But it doesn't mean obey. Even Jesus. Remember this story when Jesus, as a young boy, went missing? And then they found him in the temple, educating the Jewish leaders. And in that context, Luke, the narrator here, says, Then he, Jesus, went down with Joseph and Mary, his parents, when they found him, and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Hupotasso. He submitted to Joseph and Mary. So here we have God incarnate, the creator of the universe, the Son of God, submitting to human authority. Does that mean he had to obey them no matter what? Of course not. He didn't unilaterally obey man in all cases. It's about submission. If we go back to our text, submit yourselves to the divine institution. We're not obligated to obey government no matter what. We're to have a healthy respect and submission and understand that government is part of God's divine design and we're to live within that structure. Everybody on planet Earth has to live within that structure. At least for now, they're trying hard to make it a one world system religiously, politically, and economically, a globalist system, but we're not there yet. And so it makes sense, frankly, when you think about it, because if we don't submit, the opposite is anarchy. Now, I submit to the government because I'm not an anarchist, and I hope you're not either. As I said earlier, the church functions not contrary to government, nor under the thumb of government, but within a context of government, the way God designed it. And when governments step outside of God's divine design, when governments leave the parameters which God has laid down plainly for them in Scripture, then we answer to a higher priority. And the relationship between man and God always trumps the relationship between man and government. America needs the church because our government is derelict in its duty. We can no longer count on the government to stand for what's right and bless good and speak out against sin and punish evil. Our government says that unborn children have no constitutional rights and that each state can decide for itself whether or not it's acceptable to murder innocent unborn children. And make no mistake, as I talked about on a radio interview Monday, SCOTUS did not abolish abortion. 
Quite the contrary, they made it clear that the unborn are not human and therefore they have no constitutional rights. And each state can decide for themselves if they want to murder an innocent human being. Our government has said that churches are not essential. Remember that a couple of years ago while Planned Parenthood and liquor stores and that many th other things were essential. But churches aren't and they have to stop worshiping God and shut down. Our government says that men can marry men and women can marry women. God's word says that's an abomination to his unambiguous and unwavering standards. Our government says certain employees must take an extremely dangerous experimental gene editing bioinjection or they're going to be fired. Our government controlled schools teach eight-year-olds that deviant sexual relations are normal and that sex before marriage is perfectly acceptable. God's word says otherwise. See, the more our government abandons its duty within God's divine design, the louder the church needs to cry out. We must hold our government accountable to do what God's word demands that it do. America needs the church. I know it's discouraging. I know that you know, the trajectory of our government uh, is not good. Um, I know that the trajectory of the church is not good, as we've talked about before. I remember when David Fiorazzo was here and we did that Q&A at Plum Creek Chapel. You know, we both lamented how few churches there are that are standing firm on the Word of God, speaking about Bible prophecy, speaking out against medical tyranny and things like that. I get it. I get all that. But we have a job to do. And so what I say to believers in the church age today is do your job. Quit moping around and fretting and worrying. Do your job. Leave the rest up to God. You know, his timetable is perfect. He may come back today. And hallelujah, that would be great. Because I'm pretty sure there's air conditioning in heaven. <laughs> but he may tarry. It's not for us to know. Our job is to do what God has divinely ordained the church to do. God is not through with the church. So our country needs the church because the church is divinely ordained institution. Our country needs the church because we will make America great. And our country needs the church because we can no longer count on the government to do its job. We have to stand firm for morality. We have to uphold the standard of right and wrong. So here's the takeaway. To believers, those of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, I say do your job. Get in the game. Stop moping around and lamenting how much the government has let us down. Stop fretting over the state of the church. You are the church. And if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you're an unbeliever, that is, you've never trusted Jesus and Him alone as the only one who can save you and give you the free gift of eternal life, then my takeaway for you is time is short. Uh, you need to trust in Christ today. It's the only way you can be saved from the penalty of sin. It's the only way you can have eternal life. But in so doing, you also become part of the team. You become part of the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And we need, we need all the help that we can get. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for this timely reminder uh, of what early believers were facing in their day and how similar it is to what we're facing in our day. And Father, how I pray that you would raise up men, women, and young people Christians who know you that would fulfill our biblical obligation in the church today to make a difference, to shine like lights in this perverse generation. Lord, I pray if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, that today in simple childlike faith, they would be born again. They would trust in your Son and our Savior as the only one who can save them. 
And we pray all of this in his precious and holy name. Amen. Let's stand together.